0: There are millions of stories in the Naked City, but if it weren't for courthouse photographer Stephen Hirsch, some of them would go untold. Hirsch photographs and interviews defendants outside of Manhattan's criminal courthouse and posts their stories online. Good morning, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. In just a moment, we'll hear all about Steve's project called, appropriately enough, Courthouse Confessions. And coming up later in the show... A Race Like No Other. New York Times sports writer Liz Robbins joins us to talk about her new book on the New York City Marathon. This is Cityscape for November 1st, 2008. Glad you're with us. When reporters and photographers gather outside of courthouses... They're often on the lookout for high-profile defendants, celebrities turned criminals, or people accused of the most heinous of crimes. But freelance photographer Stephen Hirsch is interested in more than that. For the past several months, Hirsch has been photographing and interviewing everyday defendants outside of Manhattan's criminal courthouse. He then posts their stories at courthouseconfessions.blogspot.com. The project offers a fascinating look at a side of the criminal justice system, that rarely sees the light of day. Steve and I sat on a bench in a park across from the courthouse to talk about the block. You spend a lot of time across the street here, across the street from this park, outside of the courthouse.
1: Yeah, I spend just as much time outside lately as I do inside, maybe more. I work as a photographer for the New York Post, a freelance photographer for the New York Post at the courthouse, and photograph the uh, kind of perp de jour, I like to call it, which is a rapper or... Uh, governmental worker in trouble or uh, somebody stealing money from the company or murderers or, uh, you know, a potpourri of everything. You name it, it's here.
0: It's one thing to photograph these people. When did you decide to interview them?
1: Well, it started out that I was standing outside waiting for somebody to come out. And then um, people would come over to me, see the camera and say, hey, can you take my picture? And i go, no, I'm not just taking pictures of people. And then people were saying, hey, you know, I got this story. You won't believe what's going on. And I'd go, I'd believe anything. So I spent a lot of time, uh, downtime, and um, I decided that, well, why waste this time? Let me stand outside. And when these people come over to me, let me start photographing. I was looking for a new project. Uh, I work as a fine art photographer. And I've done a couple of projects on crime in the last couple of years. One was on uh, homes of sex offenders and the other one was on evidence at trials, and this was perfect. It just fell into my lap.
0: Do you remember that first story that you heard that sparked the idea for Courthouse Confessions, the blog?
1: (laughs) No, there was just a lot of stories. People tell you a lot of stories. They come outside, and they start raving and ranting sometimes, so I just put two and two together. After a while, it was so obvious, but I hadn't seen it right away, but... Once I was looking for a project to do, and I'm, I have to work here, I, got to, I have to work, you know, it was perfect. A lot of the projects I do are on my downtime, on days that I'm off, but here I am. My boss allowed me to do this, it's kind of a side thing.
0: Is it difficult to get people to talk to you, because it doesn't sound like it is. It sounds like people are pretty open.
1: It's amazing that people are pretty open. I, I'd say I'm getting about one out of three people who talk to me. A lot of them I don't use, because the stories are just not that interesting they're interesting for them and I don't want to downplay the importance of their lives or their stories but it's just not interesting enough to capture people's attention so uh, yeah it's pretty easy it's actually much easier than I thought it would be I thought it would take me one out of ten but it's really one out of two one out of three almost. Tell me about some of the more interesting stories that have come to you. Well I met a guy outside he looked kind of disheveled he was kind of cool looking uh, dressed kind of cool I went over and started talking to him and he told me he was homeless and his name was Mark. So uh, here's the story. I, I after asked him for his last name because I get releases from people and um,
2: his last name is kind of interesting. You'll get it right away. So tell me your name. Uh, my name is Mark. Mark, you want to tell me your last name? Uh, no, that's all right. Just Mark, or Mark, Mark, Mark. Mark, Mark, oh, that's better. Yeah. Okay, and uh, can tell me what happened to uh, you? I was walking down Ludlow Street and uh, I guess a police officer who I'd had would uh, had interactions with in the past, spotted me and followed me about four or five blocks, uh, watched me take a pee in an alley and some garbage in the rain, and then followed me another two blocks and then put handcuffs on me and took me to jail for which I spent 20, 20 hours in a holding cell and uh, was released with credit for time served, which I feel like was kind of a ripoff. off 20 hours in a 30man cell it's freezing cold for taking a pee when there's no public restrooms available is pretty bogus I think if you're gonna arrest somebody for for having to go to the bathroom you should maybe provide public toilets'm i from San Francisco they have pay toilets there at least on the street I and mean, there's no 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 business will will, will open their restrooms to a non-paying customer so if I don't have to buy a sandwich and I have to go to the bathroom, then I guess that means I'm going to jail. That's pretty much it. That's the long and short of it.
0: A lot of animosity against the law,
2: correct?
1: There's a lot of angry people out there. They feel they're really being taken advantage of by the police, that the police are
0: overzealous in uh, their duties and uh, arresting people because they need to make arrests. Some people say that they were arrested simply because they didn't have an ID on them, police probed further, etc.
1: Yeah, exactly. People who live in the projects, they say that the police come by a lot and harass people, ask for IDs. Their excuse is there's drug dealing going on in the building. People aren't doing the drug dealing, but because they have no ID, they take them in. It's ludicrous.
0: You don't include your questions when you transcribe these. How come?
1: I want the flow to be strictly from them. It's not about me. It's only about them. It really is. So the questions are just there to prompt them. If I can just say hello and just what's going on. And that would be the end of it. I would just do that and never say another question. But sometimes they slow down or they're at a loss for words, and I just want to keep it going.
0: You say that one out of three people agree to talk to you. Do the other people just flip you off? What do they do? It's pretty civil.
1: I mean, I tell them the story. They look at me. They go, I don't think so. Or, you know, that would be kind of silly for me to do that. Or I don't think it's a good idea. And they just, you know, we exchange uh, goodbyes and that's it. There's really no animosity.
0: I, I don't get any in your face. You know, kind of nastiness. Why do you think the people who do talk to you agree to do it? Do you think that they want to get something off their chest? Is this their opportunity to tell someone their story? Maybe they feel that the court didn't hear them?
1: Exactly. Uh, What happens is, you know, if you're going to court or I'm going to court, you're going to prepare a statement to tell the judge and you're going to tell the story the way you want the judge to hear the story, whether it's right or wrong. And uh, when you get there, when they get there, Nobody listens to them. The judge doesn't listen to them. The lawyer speaks for them. It's usually maybe a control hearing or they're just copying a plea or something like that. And they really don't say anything in front of the judge. They just have uh, the lawyer say it. So I think they want to get it off their chest. They prepare the statements. Uh, a statement They need to give it to somebody, so I'm there. I'm, I'm the judge at that point almost.
0: It's interesting that someone would admit to domestic abuse, but I read one where someone did admit to domestic abuse. Am I right?
1: They're all misdemeanors. Most of the time they're misdemeanors. have been a couple of felonies, but most of the time they're misdemeanors. They'll admit to anything. They're, they will speak as freely as I'm speaking to you right now about what I do. They'll speak that freely about what they do. They have no qualms about talking about what's going on. Maybe it's the culture. I don't know. I, I, I don't live in that culture, the cu- culture of crime or the culture of, of domestic abuse or people doing things wrong or, or that kind of atmosphere where these people come from. I just don't live there. To me, it's an embarrassment. I wouldn't do it. Did any story take you by surprise? Uh, they all do. <laughs> they were all pretty intense. Uh, I, I have to shake my head sometimes when I come back. I just can't even believe what I hear.
0: There's one woman, Trisha Klinkhammer, who's pretty interesting.
1: Trisha Klinkhammer was pretty interesting. She goes around and writes U equals love, and she's totally obsessed about U equals love, and that's all she does. I don't know if she makes a living doing anything, but she's obsessed about this, and it's great. So why don't we just listen to her?
3: Tell me your name. Trisha Klinkhammer. Clinkhammer. Spell it. K-L-I-N-K-H-A-M-E-R.
1: Okay, What what are you here for? What did they say you did?
3: Um... I don't know it's a confusing matter because I got arrested like six or seven times for basically I was running around the streets of New York's um, writing you equal love on everything and putting you equal love stickers everywhere and harassing people and I was went crazy and got caught a bunch of times and I kept having to go to court for like two years I went to court like every month and finally it's over. And uh, why do you do this? Because I'm crazy. (laughs) Because I'm gonna have a compulsion. (laughs) What is that compulsion? The compulsion is I like to write on things, and I like to write. I like to say. I like to remind people that they equal love. And do they equal love? Every human equals love equally. Yeah, that's my point. Equal love, equal love.
1: Well, what does that mean exactly? I'm confused.
3: Equality.
1: Equality. Yeah. Equality for what?
3: Equal. It means that um, that any that the sum total, if you add all the actions and generations of humans together, that the total equals love.
1: I'm still a little lost. Call me dense.
3: I'll call you Equal Love.
1: <laughs> uh, so
2: equal for who?
3: Equal. All humans are equal and equal love equally. And the proof is in the proof of that is in the fact that there is a growing population of humans. So obviously love works because that's how come there's so many of us.
1: And how did you get this obsession and how did you think of it?
3: Uh, When the towers went down, I was working on a project called Boil Down Sentences to say more. I was trying to think of a way to communicate to a large group of people like the human race in the smallest amount of spaces and um in my quest to say the least amount of things to say the most important message with the least amount of words i came up with the equation you equal love are you able to see
0: through a snow job do you know when someone's lying straight to your face (laughs) you know actually no
1: i mean i hate to say it it seems kind of naive but maybe in a certain way i am naive i can't understand if some of them are lying or some of them are telling the truth, or they're all telling the truth, or they're all lying. I, I don't know. It's really up to you. You read it, you get as much as I do out of it.
0: Have you ever gone into the court records
1: to see whether someone was lying? Yes, I have actually. And I caught somebody exaggerating the circumstances, but not necessarily lying. What was that story? I'd rather not tell. I don't want to incriminate anybody beyond what they've already done to themselves. For the most part, it seems like these people are giving you their real names. Yeah, I think so. I think in most cases they are their real names. You know, Mark, Mark, Mark is not his real name, but his real name is probably Mark. But I don't think he's hiding his real name. I just think he wants to have this kind of uh, you know, bizarre street name, and, and that's why he's doing that. But no, they're not hiding their names. Are some people apologetic? Yeah, some people are. I think there's a couple of abuse cases where people apologize to the other person. You know, they want to get it off their chest. I, you, you ask me, why do they do this? Well, they do it because they want to get it off their chest. They feel guilty about it. They feel ashamed about it. It's a way of feeling better. You know, it's like you go to a confession. I mean, I hate to uh, kind of compare this to going to a confessional booth in a church, but for some people, it's the same kind of thing. They just want to get it off their chest. They want to be forgiven. I think I'm not going to forgive them, but maybe forgiven for simply saying it.
0: Were you ever disturbed by someone who didn't show any remorse for a crime they
1: committed? No. As I said, I've been doing this a long time and uh, I've heard it all. So nothing surprises me. I've been a photographer working for a newspaper for like 14 years I've heard and seen so many crimes spoke to so many criminals and uh, I won't make judgments I just won't I, and, and in a certain way I'm sort of numb to crime at this point I've seen and heard so much again that I, I am numb I just don't know what it means anymore I mean people hear things and they're totally surprised and shocked by it and it just I, I'm very blase about it I just sort of goes, oh
0: okay yeah I get it What I find so great about your blog is the fact that these are stories that you're not necessarily going to read about in the paper. These are not the high-profile cases that are being heard every day in New York City.
1: Yeah, they're about as low as it gets in some cases. So, you know, it's not about the value of the crime or whether they're spectacular or not and they have enough gravitas to make a newspaper. It's not about that. As a matter of fact, I'm not interested in that kind of crime. I'm interested in real people telling real stories. It's more than about crime. It's about people. It's about their place in society, how they're being treated by society, how they, in a lot of cases, lose their dignity because maybe they're poor, they're stereotyped because they're criminals, these are real people. These are, are, are really, in, in most cases, nice people who just are wayward. And, um, you know, because of the circumstances they're in, commit crimes. I, I, don't, I don't aim to be a sociologist, so I, I don't really want to go there. I'm not trained as that, so I'm not going to start speaking in those terms. But I just know on a personal level that I speak to a lot of these people, and I, I really like them as people. I think people are victims of the circumstances sometimes.
0: Another recent entry: there was this guy who said that he was involved in a robbery. He just needed the money. He didn't have any money. He was broke. He saw someone look like they had money and robbed him. I feel bad for
1: the victim. I feel bad for the criminal. Um, it, it's terrible. I mean, think about it. What would you do if you had no money? What would you do to make a living? How would you survive? What would you do in these kind of terrible circumstances? I don't think you and I would do crimes, but what would you do? What would you do when your back's against the wall, when you have no education, when you can't work, when you can't even get a job? Do you see a lot of the same faces? I see the same faces coming back for the same cases because they have a lot of control hearings. So they come back and they, they just go through the motions for a day or something like that. And it takes about five minutes. They come back another time. So, yeah, I do see a lot of, of the same faces. I don't think for different crimes. I think for just the same crime.
0: Can you see a good story coming based on how someone looks, how they're dressed?
1: yeah I can I can visualize somebody I'm a photographer I'm an artist I can look at somebody I can tell you the story as a matter of fact sometimes I stand out there and I play a game with myself just trying to guess what they've done before they come out and I can I can get it right probably 50% of the time if I have three guesses I can probably get it right 90% of the time
0: why do you think people are interested in this kind of thing
1: voyeurism <laughs> sensationalism people who care about people oh are just all different reasons storytelling is very big these days and the stories are interesting because everybody's got an interesting story. Well, these stories are interesting not because everybody's got an interesting story, but their stories have to be interesting because they're criminals and they're telling the criminal stories.
0: Steve Hirsch, Courthouse Confessions. Thank
1: you so much. You're welcome. I, I hope you enjoy the stories.
0: Steve's website can be found at courthouseconfessions.blogspot.com. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. Close to 40,000 runners will be showcased before some 2 million spectators tomorrow in the New York City Marathon. It'll be the 39th running of the famed foot race. Joining me now on the phone is Liz Robbins. She's a sports writer for the New York Times and the author of a new book called A Race Like No Other, 26.2 Miles Through the Streets of New York. Good morning, Liz.
4: Good morning, George.
0: How much different is the New York City Marathon today than the very first race in
4: 1970? (laughs) Well, let Talk about sheer numbers first, 127 people lined up as opposed to 39,000 and change lining up this year. And obviously the locations were different. Uh, for the first five years, it was all in Central Park, four laps around that treacherous uh, loop of Central Park. And now, of course, it's the legendary five boroughs, of course.
0: And there was only one woman in that first race, right?
4: Exactly. And Nina Cusick, who's just a legend in her own time, she was doing it pretty much on a lark. She had another marathon to accomplish two weeks later. So when she wasn't feeling great, she thought nothing of just stopping after 16 miles. (laughs) And she said, had she had known that history would have recorded that moment, she would have finished of course, she went back and, and won the marathon many times, and won, was the first uh, winner of the, the Boston female winner of the Boston Marathon.
0: Fred LeBeau was the founder of the New York City Marathon. Was it also his idea to move the race to all five boroughs?
4: He had to be convinced, actually. Really? But once he was convinced, he was a little skeptical if the entire city would shut down for this race. It was easy in Central Park and very self-contained. But he also was a man of vision. So once he realized there was financial backing, thanks to the Rudin family, and he had a lot of people excited about it, he said, let's try it. And, well, here we are, (laughs) 33 years later after that first 76 race.
0: There are several dozen wheelchair athletes in the marathon today, but that wasn't always the case, and Fred LeBeau also wasn't in support of that.
4: No, he wasn't. He thought that this should be a foot race only. He loved his running and was very protective about the field. He was very concerned about safety. And indeed, there are times in this modern marathon where wheelchair racers can come close to runners, and that can be a dangerous situation. But I think with good course marshalling, that is gradually being corrected. But obviously, over the years, he was convinced, and some lawsuits helped uh, convince him even further.
0: Today, women start the race earlier than men, right?
4: They do. And in fact, this year, it's even earlier. The women will start at 10 after 9, so... For all those fans wanting to see some of the women, the top women in the world compete, it's going to be an amazing field and an amazing race. Uh, you might have to get up a little earlier this year.
0: Why did they start earlier?
4: Originally, they did start with the men, but this was a chance primarily for TV to show the women in their own right, to give them their own race. So it can be a little bit lonely, but then again, for the elite men who are running so far ahead of the rest of the pack, it's pretty lonely too, so it is really a way for the women to get their own spotlight on television.
0: Your book profiles last year's race, the 2007 New York City Marathon, and you include a lot on Great Britain's Paula Radcliffe, who won among the women.
4: Right, and she's back again this year. Paula is just an amazing example of just grit and determination, and grace as well. It seems like every time she comes to New York, she comes with redemption in mind, and 2004 she had that terrible flame out at the olympics and had to stop after 22 miles and she came to new york and won that in dramatic fashion very uh, in a sprint to the finish and then last year it was her return to the sport after 15 months she had had a baby uh, about nine and a half months earlier and was suffering from injuries but there she was and she led the entire race with the exception of 10 seconds Getawami Wami from Ethiopia was trailing her the entire race. It was really just the two of them running through the streets of New York. Geta made a move on Central Park South near the end of the race. And Paula, boy, she wasn't going to stand for that. She matched it and stormed ahead to the finish.
0: Tell us about last year's men's winner.
4: Ah, Martin Lell. Martin Lell had one of the most dominating seasons from Kenya, from a small town outside of El Durret. And the first time he won the New York City Marathon, and 2003, he he bought some cows for his village, and that perhaps was the most exciting part of his victory. He didn't need the car that he got, (laughs) but Martin Lell just was so strong. Nobody was running better. He had won London in April, and he came in, and just with Martin Lell, you know he's going to have a very, very strong kick at the end, and that's what he did. He outkicked Abdurrahim Goumri from Morocco. And he also dropped Hendrik Ramallah a couple miles before the finish. So with about 400 meters to go, Lel made his move, and boom, no one could beat him.
0: Is there any particular reason why Kenyans are so successful at the New York City Marathon?
4: (laughs) Oh, boy, that's a question that's been asked so many times. It's New York and Boston. It is complicated, but of course it owes to the training in altitude and the heritage of running. Martin Lell belongs to the Kelingen tribe, which really is a warrior tribe, but also is based where all the runners come from, or at least so many of them. So that's what he knows, and he grew up running 20 kilometers to school every day. So this is just part of his own heritage, and perhaps running an altitude help, being part of a, a community, and they all work together when they're training. We'll never know exactly what it is, but it is impressive.
0: You write in the book that New York is not the place to come to break a world record. Why is no, that?
4: Yeah, no. Hills, bridges, turns, <laughs> it is a bit treacherous. And certainly when you're going over these bridges, obviously you have to go up and then come down, and both of those are hard on your legs. And you're, you're really not going to have a flat course like you do, say, in Berlin, where Haile Gebrselassie has now broken his world record twice. You're not gonna see a two oh three fifty nine from the men in New York just because the course is too difficult.
0: You often hear about runners hitting the wall. Typically what mile is that for runners in the New York City marathon?
4: Typically twenty. But it depends really on your own body. And when you have no more glycogen left in your body, you are converting fat stores to get energy. And that takes a little bit longer as Uh, One of the professors that I spoke to says it's like running on a poorer grade of gasoline. So your body needs to adjust. And once it does, it will kick into the finish. But it's a lack of willpower. Your legs are dragging. It is so hard to beat that wall. And it's kind of a mind versus body moment.
0: You say that the marathon allows runners to take a trip around the world without a passport. (laughs) Tell us what you mean by that.
4: Yeah. Well, two reasons. Number one, you're running through all of the ethnic neighborhoods of New York, and all five boroughs are so distinct. And whether or not you're going through Bay Ridge and Sunset Point and where you have Middle Eastern and Chinese and... Scandinavian. <laughs> and in Greenpoint, you have Polish neighborhoods. So the neighborhoods themselves. But then when you're looking at the people next to you, there are runners from 107 countries running this race. And half the field, even a little bit more than half the field, comes from overseas. So That's about 20,000 people. And it, it's like a world party.
0: Mile 10 provides a very unique experience for runners because there are very few spectators clapping and cheering. Right. Describe Mile 10 for us.
4: Mile 10 is in Williamsburg, and that is the ultra-Orthodox section. It is a very special, if not a little unsettling, part of the course. You've just gone through all these miles of cowbells and people crying and yelling and handing out water and shouting encouragement, and the contrast is fascinating, but I think it actually kind of lifts up the runners because it is so different. It gives them something more to concentrate on. But the whole idea is that these runners who run with very little clothing, it's too immodest for the ultra-Orthodox community, uh, the Hasidic community of Williamsburg. And they don't really believe that this is something they should do or watch. However, they're so used to it that Certainly, there'll be a very nice, gentle clapping, and some of the younger girls and boys will be handing out water. There's not a distrust. It's more a distance.
0: Every runner remembers going over the Queensboro Bridge, going down that ramp, and onto First Avenue. I know that I remember it so vividly from the two times that I ran the New York City Marathon. You write in the book that this is where every runner feels like a champion. Would you agree? I would agree. Tell us why, though.
4: It's just this electric canyon of sound, and, and everybody is cheering together intensely. You've got six, seven people deep on the sidewalks, and you're running through this gauntlet. It's as if you've you know walked into a stadium, and it's all erupting for you. It can be a little tough it can be kind of like the siren sound and it makes you want to run faster but you have to be very careful not to expend all of your energy because you've still got about nine miles to go
0: yeah you certainly do it's just so amazing because while you're running over the Queensboro bridge all you hear is panting and foot stomping <laughs> among the other runners and then all of a sudden you hear this roar it is absolutely incredible no yeah. question and you paint it in such great detail in your book a race like no other In addition to the pro athletes, your book tells the tale of, I don't want to say ordinary runners because they're all extraordinary in their own right. So let me just say non-professional athletes, including a recovering alcoholic. Tell us about her.
4: Pam Rickard, the mother of three, and had been battling the addiction for a long time but didn't really recognize it until she was sent to jail for her third DUI. And that was in 2006. And in jail she saw the New York City Marathon. That was the year that Lance Armstrong won, so it was on national TV. And she had been a marathoner, but she vowed that she would run the New York City Marathon and would be running it sober. And just her trials and tribulations with her family and with her own addiction, she's been sober now for almost two years. And just her courage and running and what New York meant to her uh, is something that I explore in, in these pages. She is so enthusiastic and takes in every moment, and she's back again this year.
0: That's great. What does she say? She says something like, I am the marathon.
4: (laughs) Well, she is the marathon, but she's also, she feels like a celebrity because it is this moment where an ordinary runner can be, okay, maybe an hour behind, but that runner is on the same course as a
0: professional. You also tell the story of a young cancer survivor, a young man who was going to NYU when he was diagnosed with cancer, and what an emotional experience was this for him. He ran with his brother.
4: Harry Bax and Rich Bax are from Riverdale, and they are just inseparable. That's really what set their story apart, just the way they supported each other. Harry decided, while having radiation treatments, that he was going to run a marathon. His brother, who had done it the year before, suggested it. And he said, hey, after going through cancer, running a marathon is a piece of cake. <laughs> Harry decided to do it. He wanted to give back to Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, where he was treated. So he runs for Fred's team, the charity there. And at the same time, Harry's starting up a business of uh, sports philanthropy, which he called Carnegie Sports. And it's just an amazing thing because he has so much energy and he has so much enthusiasm for running, for helping people. And what he did, even though he was not a runner originally, he was a football player, a baseball player, he did it on just pure will with the strength of his brother, who, by the way, became a radiation oncologist Mm. after the whole experience.
0: And a pivotal moment for him in the race is when he ran past Sloan Kettering.
4: Right, right. And it was interesting because he said, oh, my race will end there. And so he gets there, and he sees some of the nurses, and he sees people, and he's just welling up with emotion, but he's not crying. And he decided, wait a second, I came here to finish. This isn't my real finish line. Let's get going.
0: Such an inspiring story, no question. A couple of other guys we need to talk about Mm -hmm. are the only two guys who have run every New York City Marathon since
4: 1976. Tucker Anderson and Dave Abolkovich. They love this sport, they love their running, and they each have this great story to tell. Tucker, of course, has not missed a day of running since February 6, 1992. He's gone at least a mile a day. And Dave Obolkovich is also an ultra-marathoner, so even though he misses some days of training, he also goes for the long haul. But they've got this little thing going on, trying to see who's going to last the longest. And, you know, they're in their mid-60s, and... They keep
0: on going. All right. Well, the book is A Race Like No Other, 26.2 miles through the streets of New York. Liz Robbins, thanks so much. Thank
4: you, George.
0: A Race Like No Other is out now from HarperCollins. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer McCall Neria. Have a great weekend.